1: What a, what a screamer! And a
2: Arsenal back in it! And Lippa, lines it up, finds the net.
1: Arsenal in front. Arsenal kicked the ball into the Liverpool net nine times and still managed to crash out of the League Cup. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right, we scored five goals four penalties, and still managed to crash out of the League Cup uh, in what was certainly an entertaining affair uh, at Anfield. And I will say that if there is one thing that Arsenal has proven, it's that while we may not be able to... I don't know, win football matches, we certainly understand drama and entertainment, uh, whether it is players trudging off the pitch and balling up their, their shirts and getting booed and, and you know turning into WWE wrestling heels, or it is uh, scoring five goals and still failing to win a game. We definitely have the whole drama and excitement thing down. And you know what? It makes a nice change. So real quick, uh, just a little bit of housekeeping. We have uh, a first half rewatch with Clive for patrons coming up tomorrow. So that'll be exciting. That'll be Friday. Uh, And you know what? rewatch I can actually kind of get behind because that should be a lot of fun before everything went tits up. So definitely join us for that. And our friends at The Athletic have finally uh, worked out a way that we are going to get a very special guest uh, on behalf of that organization joining us for the pod next week. So we're very excited about that. And if you'd like to join them, we have a really fun promotion we're going to be doing in November. So that's coming next week. But in the meantime, Arsenal Vision is uh is still the best way to get the athletic the athletic.com forward slash arsenal vision and uh you get half off and just 250 a month which seems pretty good but you know what else is good having a big j journalist and arsenal supporter on the pod to discuss the game with us down the line paul will be on but before that the good stuff his name is james his last name is benj benj james benj and you can follow him on twitter at james benj and you can read him on football.london and he is here on the podcast hello james Hello. Hello, yeah. So the last time we spoke was in sunny California. Uh, we were doing a live pod with Andrew, uh, the Arse Cast, in a bar, having drinks. It was all very pleasant. We gallivanted around LA and laughed about the state of the club. And here we are, uh, just a scant, I don't know, whatever it is, five, six months later, uh, not having any drinks, not enjoying any warm weather, but still laughing about the state of the club. So plus ça change, huh?
3: Well... No Korean barbecue since either. I mean, for me, that's the big miss has been the Korean barbecue uh, mm. in LA. Mm. But um, yeah, it does. I, I was remembering when we did that podcast, Lauren Koscielny had um, had left the club in crisis, and I thought, well, at least when he's gone, we'll have a, a, a captain for the long haul. Um, so. Yeah, as you
1: said, please, Tashaw. Two minutes and 33 seconds on the clock, and we've already come to the captaincy issue, but I'm going to shove that to the back of the conversation so we can discuss some actual football, because it is long overdue. James, this is a really interesting game, if you love hashtag narrative. So let's start by discussing Mesut Ozil. Um I guess he was training well, or whatever the actual argument is, but he does start, and he does provide a huge amount of the kind of stuff that had been missing possession, control, uh, final third play, the ability to advance the ball uh, from, from the back to front, getting between the lines, setting up the, the attacking players in positions where they can get, you know, get into hurtful spots and create goals. For you, I guess it's a two-pronged question. One, do you have any sense of why now for Ozil and how did you react to the performance?
3: In terms of why now, it's because it's the League Cup Uh, You know, that's the harsh reality is that, I mean, we we joke about this, but the the truth is that Ozil's not even a Europa League player. As far as, you know, Unai Emery and the Arsenal hierarchy see him, he's a player for the the EFL Cup or kind of any other games where you just kind of need to plug a gap in the first team. That may well have changed. uh, That may well have changed after last night's performance because, man, he was so good. And I know this wasn't against Liverpool's best team, but I mean, you mentioned all the the things that Arsenal have been lacking there. and Obviously, Ozil brings them. But I kind of think the thing for me is, you know, you know that Ozil's going to make those passes that you don't even see. And like what, there were two of them in that build up to to Torreira's goal. You know that he's going to keep play ticking over, that he's going to give you more of a semblance of footballing identity. What I liked about Ozil was, it took a little while for him to get going, but after the first fifteen twenty minutes, the, the guy was pressing. The guy was dropping back to to offer an outball for the for the uh, the deeper line midfielders. He I might even have attempted one or two tackles. I don't want to get carried away. I think we're all in danger of of seeing Erzul as the messiah again. But like, you know, the thing I uh, the sense I got was here was Urzil saying. Like, okay, you say these. Are, this is what you want from me. This is what I need to add. I'm going to show you that I'm willing to add it. Now you need to show Arsenal fans that if I do that, you're willing to give me a proper chance. I I kind of think we're going to see him at the weekend as well. Like, it's amazing mm-hmm. how just playing really well against a load of kids and uh, Adam Lalana as a holding midfielder can, can change the narrative so much. But like, boy, did he do it. He, he was great. I'm, I'm not sure I thought that performance was in him
1: you you can only be good against the teams you get to play against, right? Like, you, yeah. you can't be good in the games you don't play. So, you know, I, I think he deserves credit for the performance and the irony. You talk about tackles. The pass he makes to Saka that leads to Martinelli's goal is from a ball recovery. You know, I mean, he, he was doing a lot of the things that he's expected to do. And, you know, again, if you take away what he makes, what his wage is and and his star status and just evaluate him as a player who got a chance in the first team... He did everything a player could be asked to do to get more chances. So then let's do this. Since you already brought up the weekend, I had a typically hysterical reaction to him being subbed off. And we can give some context statistically to how the team slumped after he was subbed off if desired. But the fact is, in the moment, I just thought it was more absurd absurd bias by Emery both against the player and against leaning into attacking football. Having said that, you know, there was some suggestion that this was actually a planned change and that it may in fact be a harbinger of him being in the team on Saturday. And that would obviously give me a very different perspective on that substitution. So what was your take on that substitution? And do you have any either information or intuition about whether it was in fact planned and whether it is with an eye towards the weekend?
3: So it was planned. Um, it it was, it was one of the, when I say it was planned, it was sort of one of the options. And I think Almost the better he played, the more likely he was to come off because then the more willing Arsenal were to um, to have a look at him on, on on Saturday. So I don't I don't want to say whether he'll start, but I think there's quite a strong uh, sense now that he's going to be in the squad and make and make some sort of contribution. I also I was quite surprised. It, it, you know, kind of at the game, it was one of the moments where I, I wasn't really looking at Twitter, I was kind of focusing on the pieces I needed to write, and then I kind of didn't really see till post-match just how frustrated people were, because, you know, whilst, whilst Arsenal at the time they needed another goal, I, I just thought they also just needed a bit more balance and a bit more surety in, in midfield, and I thought Gwendouzi was going to provide that. It didn't work out, but like, I don't think it was a sort of mad change that, you know, only a manager that doesn't have a clue what he's doing would, would do, you know, there, there's a logic that, you know, if we just have someone who's a bit more capable of building from deep, now that we're under the cosh of it, we've got someone that can release these forwards, can release Martinelli and, and Saka. It didn't, it did not work out at all, but that doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean like that it was the worst idea. I thought it was much, much stranger to take off Torreira. It was absolutely fantastic. And, Kind of just needed needs minutes in his legs and i mean he was the, he was the for me he, even ahead of ozil, he i think he was the best midfielder on the on the pitch last night not that ozil wasn't fantastic um but yeah i i, I think we i think there's so many moments where it, it's kind of right to rush to judgment on emery but i think in this instance let's just let's see what he does on on saturday and if ozil starts Okay, I think I think maybe that was the right call.
1: Yeah, I got, you know the problem for me James is you make the point what we really needed there was some surety. I mean yes, there are a lot of teams James that when they're one goal up the move is to consolidate but Emery hmm. has all the evidence necessary to know that that's not what this arsenal is good at. And you know, yeah. you can't draw a game five, five, if you score seven goals. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but we were hurting them every time we got the ball forward. We had created more XG in the time Ozo was on the pitch. I, I'm not sure if you're an acolyte of the expected goals, yeah. the trick, but we had created more XG than we had in two years. And when he came off, Almost nothing. Really? And I think the fact is we started playing the ball in the positions Liverpool want you to play the ball and we stopped playing the ball in positions where they don't. Mesut Ozil had the most passes in the side in 64 minutes and he passed it 94.4%. What does that tell me? That tells me we were, we were getting the ball into advanced positions and holding it and keeping it and not losing it and extending possessions and extending our period of dominance and keeping Liverpool in the part of the pitch where they don't want to play. And when he came off we stopped doing that. And you could understand a manager making that choice if it weren't for the fact that he's got so much damn experience with this team doing exactly that, whether it was against Watford or against Crystal Palace or any of the number of games. The Chelsea game, his second game in charge, 2-2 at halftime. we have been battering them. What does he do? He closes up shop and the team capitulates late. So I just think it is a decision and you can be pre-planned with an idea and then realize, well, shit, this guy's going crazy. He's playing brilliantly. I'm not doing that change. I'm changing my mind. I think there's a lot of Emery on display there. A tendency towards conservatism that has hurt him. I agree with you about Torreira. So, you know, if you bring that up, you thought he was brilliant. I thought he was quite good as well. Um, You know, to me, it's hard not to look at this from the outside looking in and say he took off the two players that he just doesn't particularly care for. Uh, Torreira was able to play in central midfield and yet still get forward to score a goal, showing that he can kind of balance those responsibilities. Admittedly, we... Conceded five, but but, uh, not while he was on the pitch, to be fair. So what do you see as Torreira's role? I mean, every time he's given a chance in the Cups to play a more comfortable, natural position for him, I think he's excelled. But that's not a role that Emery seems to see for him in the league.
3: I I remember quite early on this season, I was convinced that Torreira playing high at the pitch was work and was the right idea for him. I think maybe that's because um, last season, watching a bit more Chelsea, I was like, what are all these Chelsea fans doing turning on Sari over Kante when there's just so much logic? And it just feels like the same issue over again. You know, Chelsea fans, Arsenal fans want Kante or Torreira sitting deep. But why would you have your best tackler winning the ball, you know, just outside your own box when you could have him winning it in the, in the opposition half? The simple fact of the matter is that needs a, a really good balance and mobile team behind them. Torreira needs to feel like he can push up and tackle with no fear that, that what will come behind him is this sort of absolute chaos that is Arsenal's midfield. Um, it, it just does not work with him as a, as a box-to-box ball winner right now because he's, he's not got good enough players around him, um, certainly not when Chaka plays. I don't I don't I don't think that Emery doesn't rate Terreira I just think that Emery wants to do something but is executing it very poorly and that is to have Terreira as this mobile pressing unit who wins the ball high up the pitch gives it to the front three, and then you make up for your lack of creativity by just getting the ball so high up the pitch you don't need to score. You know, it's what Liverpool do with with Wijnaldum and, and Henderson. But
1: Okay, but I can, can I respond to that so for a second? Good. Just real quick, James. Yeah. I think there's two points here. I don't think you can press at the Premier League level with one player. So if no. the idea is for Torreira to hair around tackling from the front – That has to be in concert with other players closing down angles in space, and it has to be a unified, uh, coordinated press where Torreira's tackling and, and his instinct for the ball becomes really valuable because it triggers a coordinated press. When Arsenal press, it is almost always one guy running around after the ball, and I don't think that's particularly effective, and we don't even really press that much. But the other point is, if you do win the ball that high up, that guy then presumably has to be able to distribute quickly and effectively from that position. And I don't know that that's Terrera's best skill. You know, you say, why would you want your best tackler behind? Because I don't know that it's always about tackling. I think the best defensive players don't have to tackle. And I think what makes Conte special and what could make Terera special is... Understanding space, marking a man, following a runner, blocking lanes—you know, getting in front of the spaces where they want to attack, making sure that he's not walking back—you know, like some of our other deep-lying midfielders have been guilty of or getting bypassed. I don't know that being a great defensive midfielder is always about being uh, a phenomenal tackler as much as it is having instincts off the ball of where you need to be. So, you, for me, I, I theoretically understand what you're describing. But it, I I certainly haven't seen anything from Emery that suggests we're going to have the kind of coordinated press that would allow Torreira's skills at winning the ball to, to come to the fore.
3: Yeah, and that's the problem. You know what it is? I, I think to an extent, a lot of that's been because the front three has really been in flux. And I think if you go and look at the the, the games where Arsenal have actually pressed effectively and like they're few and far enough between, it wouldn't take you long. But, I mean, even the derby this season, they did it well when Lacazette was on the pitch because Lacazette is a very good presser. Um, and it kind of... Bamiyang is not... And when he's the sort of focal point of your attack and you've got Saka and a, a new... Play, you know, two new players in Saka and Pepe, it doesn't work very well and then there's no real point in doing it. And I think... Look, I know that people don't believe that Arsenal are a pressing team and that they aren't from watching them. But, you know if you talk to, I've spoken to people really high up at Arsenal about this and it's part of the philosophy. Like Emery might not be carrying it out, but like it is part of what Arsenal expect to be as a footballing team. So I kind of think that's why this Torreira experiment has happened and Mm -hmm. it's not working. Um, And I think again, I don't want to, we don't want to spend ages talking about Xhaka, but potentially not having Xhaka in the team, whether it's for a few weeks, even just for Saturday, we get to just see how Torreira settles back in in that double pivot with Guendouzi and, I mean, we're going to see basically Arsenal's best midfield or a decent chunk of it uh, on Saturday and I think it'll work better. Just, um, there an there's method to this madness is all I'd say. It's just, Emery's been really, really poor at, at kind of making it work across the team. It just feels like he does it in, patches like he's like right i'll get the attack working and then i'll 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 sort out the midfield and i kind of feel like he's still in the sorting out the midfield stage and then he'll have a look at the defense after the next international break and it's not (laughs) it's nowhere near good enough but like it's not it's not being done at random
1: yeah no i i I think the reality is when something's not working there's the presumption that there's no plan there can be a plan that just doesn't work i think what we are seeing with emery though is he's definitely trying everything because I think already this season, I don't think we've done the back three this season, but we've done four, two, three, one, that four, three, three with the sort of flat midfielders stretched across the middle of the pitch. We've done the four diamond two, four, four, two the last two games. I mean, whatever the plan is, it can't be a very um it can't be a very clear plan if it if you're going to be changing systems and formations so frequently. So, you know, I, I think if you're going to ask a player like Terreira for example, to play an unfamiliar role, you have to at least give him a system where he's playing it in routinely. This, this, this sort of changes from game to game. Let's have a little fun though. Cause this was a fun game. And and while it is frustrating to crash out, I got to tell you, I enjoyed the hell out of this game and okay. it was wonderful entertainment in, in a competition. I don't particularly mind crashing out of, Um you know, is it, is it disappointing to score five goals and, and not go through? It is, but at least I enjoyed watching it. One of the reasons is because I just love watching this guy, Gabriel Martinelli, play football. I just think he's an absolute joy to watch, and his, his movement off the ball, his finishing, his confidence, his his chasing around, his energy, all of it. But to me, and I know Emery has said his best position is not striker. He's he's out, He's a wide player. I don't see that. I see a guy who has really natural instincts as a striker, getting on the end of moves and his finishing is so assured. Um, And you saw that in his penalty as well, which was really well taken. For you, do you see a guy who maybe is a striker, and as a result, instead of trying to shoehorn him in as a wide player in the Premier League, just keep using him as a striker in the Cup games?
3: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think in Emery's defense, I think what he said was that Martinelli sees himself uh, as a wide player, which Ah, I'm going to say that you know, I'm thinking Arsenal goal-scoring strikers who saw themselves as wide players. Um, and There was, there was a
1: French guy, right? <laughs> yeah,
3: there was a French guy. He was quite good at it. He played, <laughs> played off the left, didn't quite believe he could be a centre-forward. Like, you know, for me, it was, um, was it his second goal was the one where the ball was just kind of bouncing around, their goalkeeper made a bit of a mess, and he was just there. And you're know, like, that's, that's centre-forward instincts, isn't it? That's just like, I think the ball, you know, I'm going to gamble that the ball might drop to me and 99 times out of 100 it won't but if it is I'm going to be there and I'm going to batter it into the net and like that you can't teach that you know you that's the sort of thing that you might even argue that Lacazette doesn't quite have that like Martinelli does Martinelli just thinks if I get in this spot the ball might well come here and I might well get to hit it he is Brilliant. There's also the fact that, like, man, at the other end, he's this mental whirling dervish who will run himself to the ground, will press anybody and just annoy the hell out of defenders. Like, I don't know how many times Liverpool players by the end were just like, you're getting on my nerves now. I'm going to have to kick you. Mm. Um, it was like right. I mean, he was absolutely battered by them just because he he was so incredibly annoying. It was
1: like when ganduzi broke into the team last season too, and he got yeah. kicked quite a bit. When these young players come in and they have that precocious talent, they get kicked a lot.
3: <laughs> yeah, mate. mate, kick it out of them. That's that's the English way. Um, just he's yeah. he's just he's he's just an absolute he's an absolute joy to watch. And I mean, I almost I almost think. Do I want to kind of – I mean, you don't want to rest Aubameyang or rest Lacazette, but I want to see how he gets on at the Premier League level. Like, it's It would be the this the silver lining, if anything were to happen to Aubameyang and Lacazette, would be like, I'd really like to see how Martinelli gets on. To be fair, the, though,
1: you, you could start him at centre-forward in every remaining Europa League group game and the FA Cup games in January and arguably the early stage Europa League knockouts, and there's still a lot of football for him to play there without having to have the white hot spotlight of the Premier League on and replacing a guy like Aubameyang, which, you know, I I think with the kindest of intentions towards Martinelli, I don't don't think we're there yet... Um, and, and it gives him a chance to flourish in a position where we want him to succeed. And I think it saves him from what we've done, unfortunately, to a lot of young players. And you, you've seen the impact it had on Maitland-Niles to some extent and his confidence having to play right back and right wing back for so long. You're not playing him out wide where, you know, in a slightly dysfunctional Premier League team where the fans have been on the back of the players and things like that. You give him, you know, you give him the space to, to develop. And, and I, I think that's brilliant. I, I don't know. I do you Do you think that's enough football for him if he just gets in- integrated that way?
3: Probably, yeah. I think so. I mean, and I don't see any reason why until you get to the quarters or the semis of the Europa League, why you wouldn't at least make sure that Martinelli's, you know, even if maybe towards the, the latter stages of that knockout competition, you're saying, okay, well, we'll play you out wide a bit um, just so you're still getting game time. I'm inclined to say, it's, I mean, it's definitely the best thing for him. You look at what's happening with Enketia and it's clear that you can go on loan you can play really well and still because you're not you're not ultimately the club's player you're not a priority to develop and like you know Leeds Leeds have had to sign away an awful lot to uh, to be given a year of Vancettier and still they're like well we need to play Bamford like best thing for Martinelli is he keeps playing in these cup games and he'll get time off the bench i mean it's always a funny one because you You look back at Nketiah, when he first scored those goals against Norwich, he then started getting minutes, you know, sort of these last throw of the dice minutes in the Premier League. And he couldn't do anything. But actually, I wonder if it was quite good for him just to learn playing in those scenarios and to learn how tough it is for the ball to suddenly be thrown your way and for, you know, Wenger and then uh, Emery to say, uh, Eddie, look, we need anyone to score a goal. On you go, mate. Get us a goal. I think I'm sure Martinelli might well have the same sort of reaction to that as Inquietia, and he may well not come on and score five goals and, and become Arsenal's next super sub. I suspect that won't happen, but it's good to learn that stuff. It's, it's good to just be on the bench and to be that sort of break glass in case of emergency situ- solution. And and then when it doesn't pay off, you, you learn more from it every time. I think right now he's in a really good spot to develop, and actually. For all that we don't give Emery credit, he's he's you know he's shown with Martinelli and and all the other youngsters that he'll he'll keep playing them through through rough spots. I thought the same was was true of Maitland-Niles last night, and Maitland-Niles then rewarded Emery with a really good performance, like six days after he had to get hauled off at half time because he was playing dreadfully. Maitland-Niles comes on and puts in a really good performance on the right wing, like it's a thing to give Emery credit for. And I know you are not in the mood to give much credit to Emery, but mm. I do well, think he's you a youngster as well.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, that, that's so tough, right? Because like ultimately the best thing for young players is to get some playing time, of course, but also like get some playing time in a competent side that is going through a good mm. run and has a clear identity and philosophy. And so they learn, you know, good habits and they feel good in the team. Like, if there's basically a dressing room revolt going on and the fans are turning on you and the team is playing a different system every week, yes, you can be getting game time, but it's not always in your best interest. So the other thing that is tough for me, and again, I'm not just finding intellectual arguments to not give Emory credit. I'm not trying to do that. <laughs> I just wonder to what extent the directive to play youth is something that Emory felt very passionately about or that the club basically made clear to him, and not just by talking to him about it, but by literally selling everybody else. You know, I mean, you get rid of Mkhitaryan, you get rid of Alex Awobi, you know, you get rid of Steiner, you get rid of all these players, Jenkins and so on. Inevitably, there's going to be room for the youngsters because there's no one else to play. So all things being equal, though, it has worked out. And I, I, I mean, worked out to the extent that we are getting a lot of meaningful minutes for a lot of players that we want to develop. One of the players getting some meaningful minutes who we have developed in the past and would like to see develop again is Hector Bellerin. I know you have a lot of time for Hector, big fan of his, as am I. I'm currently wearing his shirt, Uh, the shirt he wore last night, in fact. And uh, apart from the fact that he looks great in it, I thought this was a game where he looked more like Hector Bellerin. How do you feel about his return from injury and maybe this performance being the first real glimmer of, quote, old Hector, so to speak?
3: Yeah, I really really liked what he did. It's very again it's weird to be praising defenders in a defense that's let let in five goals. <laughs> Fair but, point. <laughs> uh, I thought he did quite I mean it was, not, it was noticeable that Origi kind of switched from being a left winger early on to to playing through the middle because he just was getting nothing out of Bellerin and I mean let's be honest. He
1: took the ball off Oxlade-Chamberlain's foot too once driving right at him which is not not easy to do.
3: Yeah, and is also a good way to ingratiate yourself with Arsenal fans. Quickly, before we talk about Bellerin, I I mentioned this on Twitter as well, but there's been some weird, like, pearl-clutching about the idea that Arsenal fans shouldn't boo Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. Why? (laughs) who literally phoned it in at Anfield days before he joined. And, you know, I've got a lot of time for for Ox, uh, the player, you know, both for England and, uh, you know, he did some good stuff for Arsenal, but... Why if can't we?
1: Why can't we boo any player wearing another shirt? Like I don't, I, I don't understand the problem there. It's not,
3: it's it's not something that Ox will be like. I can't believe they did that to me. That hurts me deep, Daniel. You know, and uh, to be honest, I think you know Arsenal fans would do that to some players who, who left in good circumstances if the context was right. You know, if, uh, you know, like it's not it's not malice to Oxley Chamberlain. I think in the end, most people would agree that. It was best for him and Arsenal that that they parted ways, and he's gone on and maybe. I mean, we can. I don't want to debate whether he's better or not. He's not better that much better now than he was at Arsenal. But let come on. I know this whole Jaka situation has prompted us to reassess everything about being a fan, but like you're allowed to boo the opposition. That's fine.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You're supposed to, as it turns out. Like that's literally the job. Yeah. (laughs)
3: Um, Anyway, back to Bellerin. I thought. His performance was good. I, you still can tell there's another gear to go. He's not. He's not quite got the full pace back. Uh, defensively, he looks really solid though. Uh, as good as he did a lot before he got injured. For me, it was it was about the leadership though. I mean, man, what a what a man Arsenal have on their hands. And I, I, I te- I te- he hasn't texted me back. But I texted someone who knows him quite well and just said, I can't believe what this guy is like, it, you know, things like the little things, giving your jacket to the mascot. It's, it's Arsenal. It's the sort of things that we need to see Arsenal players do. I mean, I tweeted about it as well that there was a moment after the third goal when Ozil just kind of, I don't know why he just made his way back. He wanted to be separate from the celebrations and he made his way back to halfway as all the other players were celebrating. Um, and Bellerin was straight over, geeing him up and saying, you know, come on, mate, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know any more than that what he was saying, but it obviously seemed to have an impact. Um, and it's great to see a captain do that. I know he did the same with Mustafi. Uh, he was keeping an eye on Joe Willock I think there was a moment when Willock went down injured and Bellerin was sort of straight over as the enforcer getting the Liverpool players away from him mm. um, and then even right through to the end and sort of stepping up and taking the first penalty in a shootout I don't think many right backs uh, take the first penalties in shootouts in the cop I thought it just like he just sets the tone for everything that's right uh, on the pitch and off it about Arsenal he's
1: and, and you know oh, yeah. what? Sometimes it feels performative. Like with John Terry, who is a huge yeah. See You Next Tuesday, it always felt performative and about him. With with Bellerin, I think it's because he's just a really good dude. Like he's just a great guy. You know, it's, it's very much who he is.
3: Yeah. I mean, and, and don't, like this is a guy that has genuinely, like genuinely cares about Arsenal and could have gone. And sometimes he might have wanted to, but other times he's, He's rejected the chance to go to bigger clubs where he would have been paid more. I mean, I know for a fact that Emery tried to sign him when he was PSG manager and uh, Bellerin said, uh, no, thanks. Uh, I'm going to stay at Arsenal, which I think a lot of Arsenal fans put in that position. You know, would you want like to go and compete for the Champions League and play with Neymar and Mbappe, or would you like to stay here with uh, you know, Ainsley and keep an eye on Ainsley, make the irony The irony is
1: the single biggest reason you might have wanted to leave is because you don't want to be coached by Unai Emery. But just
3: like, kidding, just um,
1: kidding. Um, yeah, well, all right. So, look, Hector's the greatest, and we're happy about that. But I, I do think that this was a performance that suggests that a return to the Premier League squad could be closer. Do you think that's jumping? too quickly
3: um considering chambers didn't travel at all my thoughts were that he probably won't play against we won't start against wolves but i think he will against leicester um i think you've got that saturday thursday gap or it's no saturday wednesday isn't it i'm sorry yeah the portugal trip has has completely confused me but the saturday wednesday gap i think might give enough time for to. To play some players twice. So I think we might see Chambers against um against both Wolves and Vittoria and then Bellerin comes back in against Leicester and like, man, Arsenal are gonna need him for that game. Yeah. Not gonna need Bellerin.
1: Yeah, gonna need both gonna need uh Bellerin and Tierney. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of people whose very last bit of of hope that Emery can get it turned around has been down to the idea that when Tierney and Bellerin start together, we'll start to see the team clicking and You know, we're, we've got to be getting close to seeing that at some point. Um, so look, I I think that it was, it was a fun game. Uh, there was a lot to like about this game. I'm curious to get your thoughts on Rob holding because obviously like Louise and Socrates are not impressing. There's been a lot of excitement for holding coming back and potentially replacing whichever one of those two guys you like least for me, that's probably Socrates, but you know, pick, pick a number. doesn't matter. Uh, but I think that holding showed that there's still some things that aren't there for him yet. Some of his positioning and some of his tracking wasn't quite right. Uh, there was one of the goals where he got sucked kind of deep, a little bit too close to Martinez. I can't remember which goal it was. It might've been origi's uh, fifth goal. Actually, I, I, there were so many goals. It's hard to keep them all straight, but, uh, how did you feel about holding's performance and, and whether he's close to making an argument for replacing one of the two starting center backs?
3: Um, I thought he was quite good. I, I didn't spot any major errors. I, I, you're right. As the goals started piling up, he was a bit more uh, disorganised. Uh, I do think part of that is it, it's just really tough to keep your head with the cop behind you and you know Liverpool throwing wave after wave of attacks at you, and you're just doing what you can to to get rid of. I've got sympathy with both him and, and Mustafi, and you know for the. the the later errors and the later difficulties they had. Um, I think he is ready. I don't know if he, again, I don't know if he'll start on, on Saturday, but I just, I look at him and he's just still the most reliable of all the centre-backs Emery's got to, to play around with there. He, you know you can kind of look away when he's in possession and the ball will just get safely moved on to the right player. I don't really think that's true of any of them. I also think if you go back to last season when he was playing next to Socrates and Monreal was on the other side, those two worked really well together. Uh, I would probably say Louise would be the one to be dropped. I know uh, David Ornstein at The Athletic reported um, that... Uh, Socrates and holding was kind of viewed as this season's partnership. I, I spoke to some people who, who said that it's probably that is the case. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. He wasn't perfect, but I mean, he's been pretty near to perfect in every other game. I think he I'm uses kinda, the ball. Well,
1: I, I'll give yeah. him that. I like, I like the way he uses the ball, which has been a problem for us playing out from the back.
3: Yeah. He's he's very, very good at that. He's, he's just so solid. And I just, I just think, The problem with Luis and Socrates is they're both a little bit cavalier. They like to assert themselves on the attackers. You know, with Socrates, that's charging forward and uh, trying to win headers and tackles that he's not really going to make. With Luis, I haven't quite worked out what it is yet, but there's definitely something he does that I don't like. Um, I just think someone like Holding that just kind of is a bit more sensible, a bit more conservative, is really what either of those two need. And I think whichever one ends up being paired with Holding, if indeed they, that is the starting centre-back pairing, it. it'll just be a bit more relaxed, a bit less manic. I think that you, you, I wouldn't I wouldn't even hesitate about bringing Holding back in on Saturday. I think he's got to start.
1: Yeah, and look, anytime a goal is scored, there's a presumption of an error having occurred. So yeah. you're going to look for it, right? But like Oxlade-Chamberlain's goal, there's not much you can do about a thing like that. And there's a dive to win a penalty, and there's not much you can do about a thing like that. And even uh, Origi's late goal, like most players just don't finish that in that situation. I also think Martinez could have done a little better on a couple of these and you know maybe Leno keeps one of those out and and you win 5-4 and everybody's looking at the game a little differently. Um you know but because a goal goes in instead of looking at the Oxley Chamberlain one is just brilliant. Maybe you say, well Maitland-Niles doesn't do well there. He waits for the ball to come down and he needs to attack it, which is true, but we're not talking about it if Ox doesn't, you know, leather it in from from 20 yards out. So it's all a bit after-the-fact analysis, regardless, which is my favorite kind. Let's let's touch on two things real quick before we say goodbye. First is just the way the game ended. Um, I think if there's a criticism about Emery that is the most consistent criticism of him that has been true prior to his arrival at Arsenal and during his time at Arsenal, it is that deep down, in his gut, the kind of football he likes is safe football, is compact football, is counter-attacking football, is reactive football. And that when he gets a lead, or even sometimes when he gets level, he defaults to playing, wanting to play more without the ball, keep it compact, and try to counter for your chances. And in a game where we were really hurting them at every opportunity, again, created more XG than we had in two years, in a game where it looked like we could create problems every time we attacked, you know, he got a lead and he, he reverted to type. Would you say that this game was lost because Emery reverted to type and that that continues to be what ultimately may cost him his job at Arsenal?
3: Yes, I think so. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I thought it was really evident um, against Palace on Sunday when there was no reason to panic, and he just panicked. You know, Wilfred Zaha won a penalty against you. Like, that happens. That happens to every team. But even 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 yesterday, you, you just thought... You know, I mean, I, as I say, I see a logic to that Urzel substitution, but you just thought... Oh, Mate, why why don't you just play along with this? Why don't you understand that this is Arsenal? Understand the, the players you're working with, and that that innate conservatism just doesn't quite fit in with Arsenal, doesn't fit in with your squad. You would be better off bringing on off Urso and, and putting on Pepe.
1: Yeah, and also we sat so deep after that, James. I mean, you yes. can look at periods of the play after that where we were we had eight guys in our eighteen-yard box.
3: Yeah, and actually, the the truth is against pretty much any team, the, you know, Emery goes on at length about the quality of the Premier League. What that means is if you sit deep, almost every team in the Premier League right now, they've got the quality to punish you. If he sits deep against Wolves and Arsenal are 2 1 up, then Diego Jota or Adama Traore, something might break their way. They might just lever the, you know, Ruben Neves or Jaramatinho might just lever the ball from 25 yards out and it might go in. And actually, if you look at this Arsenal squad, the best form of defence is just giving it a go. And also, I mean, by the way, Unai, the problem you have with the Arsenal fans is that deep down is that they're just a bit bored. It's not even... It's not. They don't want a solid defence. I mean, I, well, certainly I can speak if, for myself. If,
1: if, James, if they every won't. game we played was like the game we played against Liverpool, I think you'd have a lot more support, even if the outcome yeah. was the same.
3: I mean, I, I I still think we all, we forget that, and I, I, I this is not a defence of Emery, but there's a manager there that had fans thinking, three months into his reign, we've got our Arsenal back because he was playing. It wasn't always; it was sometimes a bit too safe, but you know, he was playing this energetic, explosive football that was a bit counter-attacky, but there was license there for players to to give it a go, and I feel like since he's stopped trying to impress Arsenal or whatever for whatever reason, it's got really plodding. And I just think if I were in his position trying to sort of save this job, you kind of need to realise that Arsenal fans would rather, they just want to be excited. But, you know, the fans in the stadium, I think they view it as, I'm spending £2,000 a year here. I don't want to watch rubbish football. And I think he's a smart enough man to understand what arsenal uh, arsenal fans have been raised on for 22 years you've got to it's you know you, you get the same thing at a club like west ham uh, whether or not it's whether it's true or not whether it really matters or not you know these fans expect more than just oh we want you to we want you to win games we want arsenal fans want emery to play well and he's got a squad that's capable of doing that and he just he can't resist it I, and actually, I get quite annoyed with him for that reason because I think he he knows that he can he can build a side that can play quite nice attacking football against Palace. There were moments, you know, even after the first two goals went in, there were moments where Arsenal played good attacking football. He'd set them out in an interesting way with that four four two with Ceballos in a free role. I was like, okay, and then and then the penalty happened. You know, Wilfred Zaha got into the box and and did what he does you don't need to panic because palace with Gary Cahill and James Tompkins were defending two on two against two of the best football strikers in world football. Like just give it a go. You'll probably win more than you'll lose. And whatever happens, it will be fun. The Arsenal fans will be with you. They'd rather finish fifth that way than, than finish fifth, just plodding out these horrible draws and boring wins. And every once in a while, Pepe or Aubameyang or Lacazette Xavier. Sorry, I know, I know I've gone off on a rant here and I'm not one of those people that wants Inouye you know, Emery sacked, you know, with my fan hat on and with my professional hat on as well. I I think he, he deserves, I think he deserves slightly more thought about what he's trying to do rather than just a kind of view from the more manic fringes of Arsenal fandom of just whatever he does seems to be a reason for him to get sacked. Well, I just well, all right, but So then
1: let me ask you a think. question quickly. Sorry. I, I, I guess what I would ask then is, do you believe that it is at a point where he can turn it around? It feels like it reached critical mass to me. Do you think he can get it turned around?
3: I think it's highly, highly unlikely. I don't think it's impossible. I think if he can, if he can, if he's willing to, to, to take the handbrake off, even if things are a bit, even if some of the results are, are at the same level as they've been, I think... Arsenal fans can be won around, but I do think it's so unlikely. But there are quick, there's quick wins here. Yeah. Start playing Brazil. You know, if you if you play if he plays for the next two league games, that front four of Özil, Pepe, Aubameyang, Lacazette, Arsenal fans will be more forgiving if there's a few errors at the other end. If it's fun,
1: yeah, uh, I, I, I totally agree with that.
3: Well, it's able. It's not that. It's not the end of the world, and. and
1: but there's there's certainly no statistical evidence or in my in my mind perform performative evidence suggesting that you know that that wasn't english but you get the idea that the team's getting ready to turn a corner i mean if anything it's going the other way and i you know i look mm. at it and i say all right well the attacking numbers are bad the defensive numbers are bad the the star player seems to be at odds with or a star player seems to be at odds with the coach and there's no consistent approach to to how he's you know picking his team and and i and now the fans are you know sort of at war with the captain it all just sort of feels kind of end timesy to me if that makes sense like i used the analogy in a previous podcast about chess when you're down to the point where you've got like two pawns and a king and the other person has like two rooks a knight a queen and a bishop you're going to lose you know what i mean you're just moving the pieces around until it happens and and this feels a little like that to me and so james you mentioned there's a window here do you wait to see if Emery can walk through it or do you make the change before it closes? Yeah, you don't walk through windows, by the way. It, just yeah. to be clear about that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. If you're Unai Emery... Yeah, yeah sure. who
1: knows? You're always trying to do something weird, yeah. I...
3: Look, Raul Senye likes Unai Emery, but Raul Senye also isn't, you know, he's not a charity case. If he doesn't think you're good enough for the job, you're gone. I think if they were to lose the next two games, I think, and this is you know, everyone at the club says he's safe, but I think if they lost those two games, I think he would go because it's such a natural break point. And actually, I think the issue then becomes if you were to if he were to make it past this upcoming international break, is there then it would have to get the, it would have to get really bad I think then because there's just so little. There's so little time for rational thinking. And I do think Arsenal won't rush this decision. Sanye, Josh Kroenke, everyone, they won't panic into making this decision. I think, I mean, look, you know I say there is a way out for him. I don't see him finding it. I, I don't expect him to to turn this around so much that it doesn't become um, so unbearable between the fans and and the club that they just think, okay, he's got to go. Mm. It, it, we can't we can't have this whole venger thing happening all over again i think that's how it ends up i don't i'm not i'm just saying that there is a way that the, you know the hierarchy want him to find that way but like it's it's you're right it's got an end time feel to it you know even like the the little things that you know it's not statistics it's just things that happen like that that goal for socrates that was disallowed That's the sort of thing. That's the sort of thing that that just goes against
1: you when when it's all. That's a really good point. I I mean, sometimes there's just little signs. I'm not saying I believe in serendipity, but like Mm. if it's a manager on the up and everything's going his way, the Socrates goal is allowed to stand and he gets a key win and up, onward, and upward. You know, I, I think the other point, James, for me is just that like if we were sitting seven points outside of top four and the top four were. Liverpool, City, a strong Chelsea and a strong United. I might say, stick with Emery to the end of the season. There's not much to be accomplished there. See what he can do in the Europa League and make a change in the summer. Because what is a change going to get you? You're not going to overhaul teams like that. But right now, top four is a weak Chelsea, you know, regardless of how, how their results have been. And Leicester, and the window is still open, and we're still within a distance where you should say, where you can say, Arsenal have every right to expect to still be able to finish top four. So, you are playing with a very rare opportunity to finish top four when other teams like Spurs and United are down. So I just think that the, the board has to be mindful of that. I, I've been, can I ask you, I ask yeah. you something?
3: Uh, other than the, the sort of stupid Mourinho talk, I haven't really seen a convincing candidate thrown into the into the ring that fans would want to replace Emery. Who would you want?
1: So the, the cop-out answer is, it's not my job to decide who's next, right? Yeah. I, I don't pretend to be a student of world football and what, who's available. Would I want Allegri? I don't know. Maybe he plays just as boring shit that I would hate. Like, Here's what I will say. I think that right now, I sort of sense that the players have just kind of given up on Emory football, that they don't understand it, that they're not comfortable with it, and they don't look like they know how to play it. I think just removing, sometimes it's addition by subtraction. So maybe you just let Freddie take it the rest of the way. Now, you don't do what United did. You don't say he's a nice guy and he managed our academy mm-hmm. and you know he now gets the job. No, you let him take it the rest of the way while acknowledging that Freddie's not ready to be the first team manager, at Ar- coach at Arsenal, and we're going to conduct a proper and thorough search between now and the balance of the season, and, and Freddie will certainly be considered as part of that search and will pick the best candidate. Having said that, I, I think sometimes when players quit on a manager, and I don't mean quit like they're not trying, but when the message just stops getting through... It's over. I mean, I think you can look at Spurs even at some level and say, we know that Pochettino's a great manager, although it gives me no pleasure to say it, but maybe the players have just stopped listening to the message there. And when that happens, you have to make a change. And it almost doesn't matter who in the short term. Um, so I, I don't know who the candidate should be. I know it shouldn't be Jose Mourinho. I would not support that. I don't want that. That's just me. Um, I could not cheer for that guy. No way, no how. Yeah. So. That's a non-starter. I, I, I've gone way over the amount of time I said this would be, but I do have to ask you one final question before we say goodbye, which is I simply, and I, I hate to have to bring it up, but we have to touch on it. What is the right way through the situation with Shaka for you? I'm not asking you for any reporting unless you have some, but like there has been some reporting that they asked him to apologize. They didn't want to do it. They've offered him counseling is another bit of reporting, but at the end of the day, they they want this to go away. I'm sure. I don't think anybody wants to see Granite Shaka well. Anybody in the club on Sea Granite Shack are frozen out. He's presumably pretty popular within the dressing room. What is the right way for this to be handled, and how do you see this shape uh, shaking out over the next couple of weeks?
3: Um, right, yeah. So the, the, the reporting would be it, it's a funny thing where they haven't asked him to apologise. They've told him that he's going to apologise,
1: <laughs> and he said no.
3: <laughs> well, but he hasn't said no. But I just don't. I, I think the view is, uh, and this is that his head's not quite in the right place to apologise yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, which I know there aren't you know (laughs) I mean I I could go into on a lengthy uh, debate about Arsenal fans and mental health Um, but I think ultimately Arsenal's priority is Granit Xhaka's mental health, and this is this has really hurt him. And it's not just about the booze uh, on on Sunday. It's about the booze against Aston Villa. It's about the um, what was the chant before the Atletico Madrid semi final about Granit Xhaka? Some, but I, I'm pretty certainly had the words "fucking shite" in it, um, and words to that effect. He he has got an awful lot of stick. A lot of it he has kind of earned for himself by not playing as well as he can. A lot of it
1: Emery's generated by just not (laughs) taking him out of the firing line when it's clear that, you know, maybe his time is up as a as a regular starter.
3: Exactly, hundred percent. But he has made you know, his performances, Emery's inability to manage those performances have all made this worse. But like, it has been really, really hard for him. I've I, I've spoken to Jacker, you know, in mixed zones. This isn't, I don't know Jacker, but I've spoken to him enough times that I feel like I can say he's a combative person uh, and a person that wears his heart on his sleeve and actually a person that cares really deeply for Arsenal and that is incredibly grateful to be Arsenal captain. Uh, and I think he, it means an awful lot to him. Um, And I think he, everyone just needs to take time to to let their heads and their hearts cool down a little bit. You know, granite will apologize because he knows what he did was wrong. Like I don't think it, I don't think it should matter whether that apology comes today in his program notes, whenever, as long as he's saying the right things and we know he really understands what he's done wrong and how he's going to make this up to fans. I think eventually he's going to have to give up the captaincy because I don't believe you can be club captain and tell your fans to fuck off. Um, And I don't believe that. I I never thought I'd have to say that. Um, I think he can still though be a player for Arsenal. I think maybe actually in a way this might be the best thing for him. um, That it's all just a bit out in the open. I I remember I went back to look at what happened with Emmanuel Abué and it was his next home game where he was getting cheered to the rafters. And Arsenal fans are... For the most part, you know, especially the ones that go, you know, the ones that go to the games, the ones online, the ones in America, the ones in Asia, the ones in the UK, they're a really nice bunch of people, and you know, they. I think a lot of them will look back and go, "God, we really regret that. We regret the way we uh, treated Xhaka there, Uh, and he really regrets how he responded. Uh, And maybe in a while, he'll he'll come back, and and we'll all think a lot lot better of him." Also maybe it means we don't have he doesn't have to play week in, week out and be that sort of physical, on pitch embodiment of everything that's wrong with Uno Emery's football. He doesn't have to play week in, week out. I think that would be for the best, but like right now I can't overemphasise how important it is that like he just get to focus on his mental health. It's tough, man. I, I mean, you know. I wrote some stuff on Twitter about my own mental health. And that was from, you know, a a few dozen people over the uh, past few days being horrible. Like I can't imagine what it must be like to have tens of thousands of people booing you. And you know, what Xhaka did was wrong and he should not do it. And he has to be able to control himself. But like, let's be honest. I I think we'd all probably do what Xhaka did. doesn't make it right, but I think everyone's just got to come from a place of understanding. He it, it, it will it it will he will apologize. It will resolve itself. He probably won't keep the captaincy, but like I think he'll try and make it up to Arsenal fans and I think that's all that Arsenal fans can ask for.
1: Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, it's 50,000 people telling you you suck at what you do for a living. Yeah. It's got to hurt. It's got to hurt. Up. And I mean, I think honestly, you know, while everybody goes on and on about terrible abuse on social media and people saying shit about your mom or your sister on social media that's trivial bullshit because at the end of the day you can turn your mentions off like you can go private with your account i'm not saying you should have to but you can silence those people from your existence and those people are just being assholes and you can you know you know why i think this is harder in a way james if someone says to me on twitter i hope you effing die you're scum and then uses a racial epithet i can see them as a monster and ignore them and be like, that person's going to hell. Mm. If someone comes into my mentions and is like, your podcast is terrible and you're bad at it and your voice sucks and your opinions are bad. Like that's more hurtful in a way, right? Because it's, it's someone who consumes my content and hates it and came to tell me about it. And when you play football for a living and your own fans think you're so bad at it, they boo you. That's extremely painful. The only caveat I'd give to that is, I don't think the booing was about his performance. I think the booing was about his response to the jeering, which the cheering which is another issue. But l- let's leave it there. The one thing I will say is this is where you just feel a good PR manager can make a huge difference because if he if he just writes some mil- even a three-line apology, when times are tough we all have to stick together. What I did was wrong, but I hope we can come together as fans. And then you don't start him against Wolves, and you hope you get lucky and you have a lead in the 80th minute and you can sub him on, and the crowd goes crazy cheering for him. I guarantee you that's what they would do because there'd be mm. a sense of shame about how he was treated, and it would hold him back to our bosom and make him feel good again. And But but if we don't get that done, it's going to fester. And you know things that fester tend not to be good. Festering in general, not a good word. I think we should leave it there. James, that's, uh, that's plenty. And I've, I've held you way too long. Paul is still coming up. Uh, and, and that chat is almost worth listening to. But, uh, you definitely want to follow James, uh, at Benge on Twitter and read him at football.london and just generally seek him out as a person to discuss the Arsenal with because he is lovely. James, thank you. Thank you. And now I'm going to do the least classy thing possible while James is uh, still on the pod, which is promote another website that you have to pay to read stuff on. But it's such a good website, James, so I'm just going to do it quickly. Uh, It's theathletic.com forward slash ArsenalVision. We'll run a little ad for that, and then we'll come back with Paul. Stay with us. Okay, it's time to tell you about The Athletic, the new home of football writing and a world-class sports website. You can get The Athletic for half off and a month trial right now if you go to theathletic.com forward slash Vision. You'll help the pod, and of course you'll help the athletic too, but that's a good thing because you will be at the new home of football, getting world-class writing, and the best coverage of Arsenal from writers like Amy Lawrence, whom we love, has been on the pod, David Ornstein, James McNicholas, also known as Gunnerblog, myself, but don't let that hold you back. The coverage of sports is unrivaled, and there's no advertising to get in the way, no clickbait, they're not chasing ad revenue, they're just trying to write great in-depth articles They've broken some incredible news. They've had some incredible interviews. Loved the article about the Eddie and Kettia load to Leeds and how that came about. So there's a lot to like there. Try it out. It's a month free. And then if you stick with it, it's two fifty dollars a month. That's it. So you can go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision and try it now. See what all the buzz is about. Go sign up now, theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. Okay, now that that's out of the way, we get to talk a little football. Imagine that. And uh, you know, we didn't really talk much about the Palace game after the Palace game because of uh, Shaka and all that good stuff. Um, but there's definitely plenty of football to talk about after this game, which is a nice surprise. Um, you know, and and something that I think makes a nice change. So here to talk the football with me uh, is Paul. You can find him on Twitter at @paws_in_my_pants. Little Paws. Woohoo! Woohoo! Indeed. Yeah. I mean. This is a meaty game to get into from an actual footballing standpoint, and it, it would be easy to fall into narratives, um, you know, about Ozil, about Shaka, about Torreira. That's some stuff that I think that's a bridge we can cross. But let's just sort of start with him picking the team and choosing to include Ozil. And I, I mean, again, we'll get into the footballing side of it. But I'm curious to get your take on his decision to reintroduce him here. And if you can sort of parse his words and parse events and and try to make out why you think this was the moment where he was reintroduced.
2: Um, I think there's obviously a bit of heat there generally. I mean, if Ozil plays in this game, there's no reason he couldn't play in Europa League games recently. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think it's just the additional bit of extra heat uh, that maybe he's feeling it's kind of a, uh, showing a bit more flexibility because this isn't the time to... You, you can go two ways in tough times. You can just erect a steel wall and and show no flexibility. Or maybe you can decide uh, there are a number of hills you're not planning to die on over the next few weeks. He's, he's got bigger fish to fry. And uh, we went to Anfield. It's going mm. to be a fairly open game that would suit Ozil. There's nothing on the line in reality, um, but there's a little on the line because he's taken position. It feels like we had taken positions uh, as a manager, as a club, uh, in terms of the the, the hierarchy and Ozo's future, and then kind of this. So I, I guess you can have shades, though. There's there's a there's a there's a pyramid of decisions being made here, and this is the by far the least. Um, valued or significant competition we're in. So if you're not going to play him here, here, then you're really never going to play him anywhere. So maybe maybe they kind of have to play him here, or they're just basically making a statement they'll never play him.
1: I guess. I mean, I sort of felt that way, to be fair, about Vittoria at home, you know, especially sure, sure, coming sure. off a, a, an international break where Emery had pretty clearly agreed with Ozil's comments to the Athletic that, he was training hard and he was improving, but maybe he needed to improve even further to win that place back. I don't know. We're never. Yeah, I, I think, I, I yeah, think it's
2: a sh- just a shade down <laughs> the pyramid. I mean, if he doesn't, literally, if he doesn't play this game, you could say he's never going to play any games. But, but I agree. I, I, there wasn't much in it with Victoria, but it was at least in Emery's mind uh, a a uh, group game for his favorite competition on the planet, blah, blah, blah.
1: Well, so here's the thing. Look, the question of whether Ozil is a a 350,000-pound-a-week superstar can be set aside. I think at this point, that ship has sailed. That's not where he is in his career. And the deficiencies he has in, in his game notwithstanding, I think this game showed for me that he still has qualities in his game, qualities that... Uh, can be useful to us specifically doing things where we've struggled connecting the midfield to the attack, finding space between the lines, and delivering clever balls that unlock space in behind the defense, not just out wide, but but in central areas. So we went with the four four two again, and, and you know it does feel very Emery that every week or two or you know month there is a new system. You know we've we've done four two three one three four three last season, four diamond two this season. We went with the 4-3-3 with the flat three midfield and and then 4-4-2 at the weekend and again in this game. But Ozil sort of <clears throat> stitched it together in a way that it hasn't been stitched. Now I'm curious to get your thoughts on on the performance that he gave and and whether you see him solving a problem in this game that has has been one for us up to this point.
2: Yeah, look, I um uh, I I go both ways on Ozil, whatever gra- that oh, means.
1: Sorry. <laughs> Well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in only. all the
2: ways that that's possible mm-hmm. um, I, I have sympathy for the manager in some senses um, or for any manager any new manager coming into the team but we're not going to get too caught up in the politics and the, the whole Ozil story it's been done many times people know know the, the basis of that discussion where no matter what side you fall on it. Mm. I, I see Ozil as a real trap for all but the most uh, Svengali-like managers. Um, I I can see the trap that he he pulls you into of, of do you build around him or do you... So here we are in this game and, you know, he just shines and he reminds you of everything we've been missing. Um, And you see a guy who, as you get into the final third, has his head up and is taking the play and has a, like a chess grandmaster, can see the moves, and he goes one way, kind of shakes the defense around a little bit, uh, opens up some lines, doesn't like those lines, so he does, he kind of flicks it onto his left and brings it a little bit infield to open up some other angles. And you watch this in play. I mean, we've seen it for years now, but sometimes, I guess in the past, I've taken it for granted. Because nobody else can do that at the moment, that's what I was struck by in this game with Ozel, just the way he and you don't know uh, the problem is you don't always get that right if you always got that in every game you'd be it'd be a no-brainer but it's not what you get but in this game you saw it in play he'd be over on the right he'd knock it onto his left foot he'd look at options he'd he'd reject those options uh, bring it back towards the touchline and the players up there, make a better na- angle, put a pass through, patiently work at it or suddenly accelerate the play. And it was just fucking delicious. And you think, Jesus, I wish I had this every week, every game. But I'm not sure that's that's really what's on offer to us. But it felt like in this game it was, and it certainly was, for this game.
1: Yeah, and, and so, so a couple of things. Well, it, first of all, I mean, obviously – The irony of his lovely touch to Saka for the cross that Martinelli slams home is that it's a ball recovery by Ozil, and then the touch, which is obviously a really good thing to see. You know, I I think there's another thing that he does, Paul, that is maybe a little more subtle, but maybe just as important for us. There were a lot of times, like I, I can think of one passage of play where he got the ball in space in the right half space, sort of right wing. Wanted to play an overlap, but it wasn't on. Looked for a run in behind, but it wasn't on. And what does he do? He shifts feet, carries it a little centrally, takes it around a defender and carries it more centrally, holds on to it, nothing opens up. And I think he winds up giving it to Torreira in midfield and sort of recycling possession. But no one does that for us. You know what I mean? No. That, that ability to get your foot on the ball and not give it away and not make the wrong pass and not shoot from 40 yards out and not play a heavy overlap that goes out into touch and gives away possession. You know what I mean? Like, we've just yeah. sort of struggled at times to keep periods of possession moving. And what Ozil has is the ability to sort of decide between trying to play the killer ball, but also just keeping the ball. And so, you know, and I thought thought we saw it when he was taken off, which we'll get to later, is just the extent to which we were no longer able to really get our foot on the ball and keep it. Um, yeah. so, so that to Can me... Can I we'll add go- on Yeah, that? please, yeah.
2: So uh, I think you and I had a quick chat on uh, some... Stats. I think it was from the Stats Bomb uh, recent conference on play, the most press-resistant players on the planet. Santi Cazorla was number one, um, and so, some were. So were some of our old favorite players from the past. I think uh, Cesc was in there, but like Mesodozo was right at the top. Like they were ahead of Neymar and uh, Messi, uh, as was Mesodozo right in the mix there. And in in this game, you saw it. And you, when you think of some of the games we've had in recent times where we could have used this, he's just I, I don't I, I knew he was always good at, at kind of holding on to the ball or been press resistant. But you also see him getting bowled over and knocked over. It's not it, it's sometimes hard to work out how good he is. Well, he's apparently absolutely bloody exceptional. And. Um, and in a game in which they had twice as many passes as us, the possession you do have, you need to be able to use it and work it and find an option and make an option. And this was, I mean, this was, he, he was man of the match for me and, and was very much why it all kind of flowed and came together. Um, it, it, again, the, the deceptive part of it is, if this was on available, if this was what we were being asked, did we want every week, every game? It's a no-brainer.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And, and like, I I I grant you that that's not what we get from him every week, or at least as far as we're aware. I would only yeah. say that, you know, if we want to be a team that says, you know, how did how did Saka get into the Premier League team? He earned his way in with performances in the League Cup and. And Europa League, right? And how did Chambers okay. get to take Maitland-Niles' spot at fullback? And how did, you know, Joe Willick get spot? Like, we've, we seem to fully accept that good performances in these lesser competitions should be rewarded with more playing time in the Premier League. And, and I understand why that maybe goes a little more for, you know, academy kids than for Mesut Ozil, But if there is no path back for him, then I don't think that makes sense. So while you can certainly say, well, there were a lot of kids in this team, it's still Liverpool and Anfield with some fairly senior players in it, and sure, some kids as well, but like, if this performance can't earn him a a way back, then the incentives are all screwed up, and I I don't know where you go from there. The other thing I would say is, he played well against Forrest, he created the most chances of anybody playing for Arsenal this season in that game, Um He played well, I think, in the Watford game. I'm not saying he starred. I'm not saying it was 350,000-pound-a-week, Mesedoso. That's gone. That's not happening. But I just think the notion that he has been so bad when he played that he's unusable is clearly wrong. Now, to be clear, that's not why he's not playing. We know there are reasons he's not in the team that are unrelated to what he's done on the pitch when he's played. And we only have access to so much information. And we're all going to fill in the blanks of the information we don't have according to our bias and and our perspective and how we would prefer to see it. All I can say is I saw a player against Liverpool that addresses problems we presently have and is useful to us. And if we could use him in the Premier League, I, I think, you know, all right, fine. Don't use him at Old Trafford or at the Etihad or, you know, against Spurs at whatever NFL pitch they play at. Like, fine. But, you know, you should... You should consider using them in other games is what I take from this. Another thing that I want to take from this is the Torreira thing. And I'm working my way through the sort of narrative stuff. And we'll get into some interesting stuff like the Martinelli performance. Hector Bellerin, I think, deserves a mention here too. Um, Lucas Torreira scored a goal. But it wasn't from that support striker position. He was playing as one of the two central midfielders. And I thought he had a lot of influence in this game, too. I mean, he and Ozil, for me, were the story of the first half in terms of the influence, if not, you know, Martinelli being the story from the the standpoint of the goals. He was winning fouls. He was, again, helping us keep possession, helping us, you know, not get cut apart, and picking his spots to get forward, and in fact, picked one of those spots and scored a goal. How did you feel about seeing him? Patrolling the midfield in a, a sort of more natural role, and and how he chose to pick his spots to get forward and drop back.
2: Uh, I thought it was great. Uh, really enjoyed his performance. Um, and whatever you say about Liverpool's kids in the midfield, certainly, and uh, that was where the experience was. I mean, uh, for all the talk about the kids, I mean, they had Milner. Uh, okay, he was left back, but but came in field when needed to shore up things. Keita Lalana, Oxlade-Chamberlain in the in the midfield. Gomez behind that. It's a lot that. of talent, yeah. <laughs> you know. uh, yeah.
1: Dibak
2: yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he, he may not be world-class, but he's a very dangerous player, especially in a, a loose open game like that. He's going to cause havoc, and he did. So, Torreira, you know, he was operating in a midfield that was uh, may, maybe not full strength for Liverpool, but... That's some serious experience and know-how. And uh, he looked really good and, and strung it all together. Um, he, it, it's almost like he couldn't quite beat his his recent uh, uh, patterns of, of play out of himself because he did get forward quite a lot, but maybe it was just the nature of this chaotic game. I think everybody got forward and back. Uh, and everybody put in a shift, and I think there was a certain amount of catharsis going on for for the team here, just to blow off some of that emotional steam and play some actual football and get lost in the football. And um, I, I thought Torreira was great for holding it all together, going forwards and backwards. Uh, Willock, I wasn't sure about alongside him. Uh, I thought he had. I thought he was maybe very Willocky in that he's still a bit loose, a bit. Positionally,
1: great on the uh, ball, problematic yeah. off the ball. Would you say? Yeah, uh, and I
2: mean, I mean, it's hard to pick you, it out in this game. Would you pick on him
1: for the goal? Their their first goal, the the Mustafi own goal. I I, I think if you watch it back, you are going to see some pretty rough footage of of Willick walking.
2: Yeah, uh, and that seems to happen with him a bit. <clears throat> um I think we've said that it's a kind of a, a little bit of a recurring pattern. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. he's got two
1: key passes. He passed at 91%. He scores a beautiful goal, an absolute stunner of a goal. But, yeah. you know, off the ball, you say, you know, the way you get in a team, if you, if you want to say what was our criticism of Genduzi last season, for example, it was not understanding where to be in space defensively, not chasing back aggressively, that sort of thing. And, and I think that Willick is sort of in that same trajectory in terms of what he needs to be doing.
2: Yeah, uh, so this was a really good advertisement for Torreira, but the other challenge he has is not just that Chaka te- has tended to get, uh, well, not tended, always, has always started. It's that when Genduzi is on the pitch, he basically takes over. Like He gets every touch, makes every pass, drops deep to get the ball. So even if we see Chaka out for some number of games for whatever reason, um, Torreira is still going to have that tendency to get pushed forward a little bit more than the deepest lying player uh, and maybe there's ways of making that work but it, it does tend to keep shifting him from the guy who sits at the base and, and pulls the strings a little bit not that he's a visionary passer from the back but he can he is a te- he, he should be if he gets into a rhythm a good tempo passer who moves along and and maybe picks the short to medium balls very well and gets us ticking at a quicker pace, and while I love Ganduzi, the problem is he gets that ball, he never wants to let it go or he wants to play the big pass or he wants to dribble past and that's a very different style of play that means Torreira is just some other midfield over to the right of him who may or may not get uh, receive the ball from him, so there's still issues there beyond the Chaka question I think for Terreira.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> the interesting thing, and I think it goes back to what we talked about in terms of what does Mesut Ozil do for the team? What does Lucas Torreira in that, in that midfield role do for the team? Okay, so if you look at our game against Palace, the player who made the most passes in our game against Palace was Socrates, okay? If you look at our game against Vittoria, the player who made the most passes was Mustafi. If you look at this game, in 60, what was it, 64 minutes... Ozel made the most passes, and he passed at ninety four point four percent, by far the highest of anyone on the pitch. So you talk, and, and by the way, Lucas Torreira in seventy one minutes played the second most passes in the team, uh, other other than Martinez, um, and he passed at eighty four point four percent. You know, not quite that good, but but still, you know, a, a nice high completion percentage. I think what it shows with Ozil is you're you're making more of your passes from more hurtful zones. At a much higher rate of completion than anybody else in the team, your your team is flowing through. Your team is flowing through the the part of the pitch that you want it to be, and the type of player that you want it to be, and that is that is really exciting. So, let's move on uh, to to some of the other parts of this analysis that I think are interesting, and I I do think that. Gabriel Martinelli is is a player that looks primed to be a star. He now has seven goals. Now, admittedly, the competition he's done that against may be questionable, but I, I think the interesting question here, Paul, is there is a temptation to say you have to get this guy into the Premier League squad, right? Mm. I don't think anyone would say he should be playing ahead of Aubameyang or Lacazette. I mean, maybe someone is, but I, I don't think so. I would be inclined to keep him playing cup games as a center forward, rather than trying to force him into the Premier League team as a winger? Because he really looks like maybe there's something there for him as a center forward in terms of the way he, he arrives in the box, in positions to score, his understanding of that, his ability to sort of drive right through the center of the pitch, make interesting runs in behind. What's your take on on him as a center forward versus a winger and the, the benefit of just sort of letting him develop in that role?
2: Well, I guess don't change your winning formula so... Uh, My first instinct would be keep doing what we're doing. So that's in support of your point. The one thing that might give me pause for doubt is if we were to go under this manager or any future manager to a more aggressive pressing style, because holy shit, that guy uh, is like. He's a lunatic, absolute lunatic. Might for be a bit of a red animals. card
1: waiting to happen, too. By the way, <laughs> like yeah. he likes to dive in. <laughs>
2: oh, he's a, he's uh. A, you can see he came from the seventh division of Brazil and fought fought his way up using nothing but his teeth. I mean, he's just he's a bad bastard. Uh, he's mean. He's I love him. Don't get me wrong. He's mean. He's aggressive uh, uh, and not not necessarily. Illegally so, but uh, I don't think he'll be too shy to pushing the boundaries. Um, he's just, his energy level, his commitment, the guy's on a mission. So if you were looking for three players to to press the BJ's out of somebody's back line, I could see why you might get him into a Premier League game, or at least off the bench with 25 Minutes to go. I think in that particular department, he has a unique skill that almost nobody else in our front three has. But to your point, we have other good players at the moment, and and in general, don't keep, don't mess with a winning formula. I mean, he's coming along beautifully. Don't don't screw that up for him.
1: Yeah, um, I I have to agree with that, and it is really exciting because developing a striker can be a game changer for any team um you know i set it on another pot i'm not sure which one it was but basically it might have been the halftime show actually like look at what spurs were able to do with with kane coming through their academy and not having to buy a striker and having a golden boot caliber striker that came through the academy they were able to win well well nothing fuck all some total of fuck all but you know they did move yeah. up from yeah. where they were, which is nowhere uh, to be. Still, pretty much nowhere. But you get my the, point. I, you can solve yeah, a lot of squad And this squatters. is a guy
2: who can play three positions mm-hmm. and can give you something, something of what Sam does. You know, he's probably the fo- footballistically the better comparison uh, at Spurs. Or you look at what Firmino does in terms of providing work rate. Maybe Martinella doesn't doesn't have all of the. The clever craft and supportive play of Firmino, because early days you can't be everything to everybody, but maybe maybe he can provide a good chunk of that for us uh, as he develops. But that's going to take some developing as well, that kind of in-game intelligence to to set other people off. But he, you know, he he looks like a guy who can play anywhere across the front line, um, and he's just his attitude is just brilliant.
1: Yeah, it, it it is awesome. And I mean, it, it has Speed, to be said...
2: Speed, power. I mean, he's pretty good build for an 18-year-old. Uh, obviously, very comfortable on the head, with the head, which we don't really have from anybody else in our front line.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, to be fair, if he had been a little better with his head at the end of the first half, he would have had another goal. Sure. <laughs> that He'd probably want I, that one back. The way he took his penalty was awesome, by the way. It was. Mm-hmm. And um, I think
2: Tierney's crossing, which we are yet to fully enjoy this season, I mean... He's going to be looking for somebody to get his head on the ball from time to time. Well, so,
1: <clears throat> Speaking of fullbacks, let, let's talk Hector Bellerin for a minute. I yeah. I thought this was the most Bellerini game for Hector Bellerin since he's been back. He was at both ends of the pitch. He was making those late last-ditch tackles with a burst that, that we hadn't seen from him. He was getting into good positions uh, in the final third to deliver crosses and cutbacks. I, I think this was the clearest sign that we are closing in on on Hector Bellerin being back. Uh, I realize it's still a long road, but for you, was this a really reassuring performance from a player who had looked pretty rusty previously?
2: Yeah. Um, was it, I think, what game did he play on recently? The Victoria game. Mm-hmm. The Victoria game, was it? Yeah. Um, I, I thought he was very good in that. He had but, a really good
1: cutback, right? Who was it to? Or, yeah. where, was it, oh, it was Martinelli who hit, struck it straight at the keeper, right? In that yeah. game, rounded a guy, yeah. and got to the, the byline and, and cut it back.
2: Yeah, so you could definitely see the signs of him uh, becoming the a, a much more attacking and confident player. And in this one, uh, I mean, the captain's armband, he he really leaned into that, and it was great to see. It was great for him. I think it was great for the team. Kind of again, part of the catharsis, a kind of a a kind of a, a fresh one evening off from all your troubles. And, uh, yeah, he was great in this game, getting back and forward. Uh, admittedly, I guess he was facing Milner, um, uh, who I have a lot of time for. But, you know, that that's a battleground that Bellerin's going to f- be feeling comfortable on. Um, and I think he really helped connect the, the, the different areas of the pitch. And despite the fact that they had... Uh, maybe twice the possession we did, and we were sitting back quite a lot. Actually, almost all of Bellerin's touches are midfield and attacking. So he got forward and he made shit happen. So it w- that was great to see. And if we can get him and, and uh, Tierney firing uh, in the first team, <clears throat> then we'll finally get to see Emery's uh, team and Emery's lineup and Emery's style of play shortly after he left.
1: It's funny because there are a lot of shades in this game for me of another sort of um, important Emory game at Arsenal, which is his second game in charge. And that's the one at Stamford Bridge in the league where we went in a halftime level after looking really good going forward, sat in our shell, and got beat late, I think by an Alonzo winner, um, 3-2. Because we looked pretty frail defensively. For a lot of the first half, but we looked like we could hurt them every time we got forward, and, and we got forward quite a bit. Um, obviously, after the substitutions, that changed. And if you look at XG, this this is the most XG we've had in any match in two years. Um, it was astonishing. And yet, after the the last goal we scored, which is right after Ozil comes off, we created basically nothing the rest of the way for you know, more than 20 minutes. So in in 65-ish minutes, we had our highest XG in two years and then basically nothing. So uh, we'll come to that in a second, but you can't have a 5-5 game without conceding, and I think we were victims of some really good finishing, some diving, some not great decisions, although we did get a decision to go our way. I mean, it's so funny, ironically, the game without VAR probably wind up liking more than the games with VAR, but I think both Martinez and holding give me gave me some issues in this game. I, I thought Holting did some of his best jobs, uh best job on the ball, actually, stepping around players and, and distributing and starting attacks. But he he lost his man quite a bit. He looked like he was a little confused where to be at times, and, and I don't think Martinez helped anybody either with uh some of his his keeping. I, I think he could have done better with a few of those. So defensively, I'm gonna put Mustafi aside because I think he's unlucky on the own goal. I think he's been mostly good when he's been asked to play and I don't think anybody believes he is an important part of the team going forward. So I think analyzing him is somewhat pointless and sort of kicking a guy when he's down. It's just not needed. Um, but Holding in Martinez, you know, are, are players that we are having a look at. And I thought both of them maybe were weak in this game. Did you agree?
2: Yeah, that seemed to be the general take I saw out on the Twitters too. Um, I mean, I don't know if you can say Martinez... Definitely, definitively, should have stopped any of those goals. But I think What's was the, the one second? that hits his hand. Yeah, and
1: it's the one too, yeah, he where gets, he's her, leaning the wrong way and he doesn't get a strong hand coming back the other way. That was the one that bothered me.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, there were a couple that bothered me. Uh, um, they're not out and out. Oh God, you you can't let those in. There's but no howler.
1: A, there's no howlers. Yeah.
2: There's no howler, but uh, I did th- expect more from Martinez because he's been very. You know, he's he's shone every time. Um, uh, you could also say he went basically wrong on almost every penalty, too, and he, yeah, he faced, right, what, six yeah. of them. <laughs> yeah. So he got five wrong. By the way, but... I'm
1: just going to stop because I have to get in the pod before I forget. Kick Arse on on Twitter, who who is one of the funnier Arsenal Twitter accounts, had the great line, I think he said, only Arsenal could be winning 5-4 and lose 5-4. <laughs> 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 that was great, because, you know, we yeah. lost 5-4 in penalties. Anyway, keep going.
2: Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was... A, the the interesting thing about this game was how many people who have nothing to do with Arsenal or Liverpool loved this game. Um, uh, maybe mostly through the eyes of journalists, uh, you know, Miguel Delaney was pissed he wasn't at this game. He was stuck at the United game, but you saw a lot of that out there of of people saying this is just bloody great fun. This is what it's all about. And you see, uh, you know, Klopp's comments. I know it's it's maybe a little. Uh, self-serving and hey they won so why wouldn't you but you just saw in this game like it was a bit more serious for Emery and maybe a bit more serious for Arsenal and blah 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 but mostly this is what football it it, it was one of those days where I just decided look I'm going hopefully it's a good game Uh, I don't really care I just I just want to enjoy it and and you know everybody the players themselves seem to latch on to that I mean there were They were disappointed, but still, you could see how up they were at the end of this. This was a rollicking ride. Um, I do agree that the two players who maybe came out of this not feeling quite as good about themselves and were, I would say, subpar for themselves were Holding and Martinez. I I don't know that you can really analyze it, though. It's not that it didn't happen and it's not of some significance. It's just how do you analyze a game like this? It was just such a cluster. But I did expect holding to be a little bit more solid. I mean, there were some unforced errors, I think, on his side in terms of how he just generally centre-backed. And Martinez had a couple of could-have-done-better-on-that-save kind of situations. And as you say, not a howler. Um, But if you get a a fairly good hand on it, um, you, you kind of think, keep that one out. But... Uh, I, I guess if it's as easy as that, if you get a fairly good hand on it, you save it. So those things are coming at you at speed. Um, and yeah, I could have done better, but, but but maybe that's not all under control of a keeper every day.
1: Yeah, the funny thing is, I, I thought the penalties were fucking brilliant from Arsenal. I mean, Ceballos aside, yeah. which was pretty well saved to be fair... There yeah. were some pretty it was a terrible
2: penalty, but it was a little, little high and saveable. a, a, a yeah. little too, in, yeah, savable was the problem. But, 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 but yeah,
1: the others were really good, really impressive from some young players Italy in a Niles, pressure spot. They yeah. seem to be really upset to lose this game, and it's funny because. Yep. I really enjoyed the shit out of this game, and I have to admit, look, I never like seeing Arsenal lose anything or crash out anything, but like the last thing Arsenal needs is a long run in the in the League Cup. I don't particularly care. There's no shame going out to Liverpool at Anfield. I thought it was a brilliant game, a fun game, a game where there were some really big performances that are really encouraging that can be a way forward for Arsenal, to show that we have some classy attacking players that when given a platform can really do some special things, albeit, admittedly, in a slightly different level of competition. I do want to get to the substitutions, though, and especially the Ozil one. And and I did reference the Chelsea game, and I think it's apt, because we had our lowest amount of possession and our least amount of attack in the period after Ozil was removed. Admittedly, we did get the, the uh, I think it was the Joe Willock... Thunder bastard yep. that, that was scored right after he was taken off. But then again, two shots in the remaining 30 minutes, one of which was the, the Willick goal, almost no XG after having created our highest XG in two years uh, in in the 65 minutes prior. So, you know, I, I'm curious. The the decision to take Ozil off, let's say it's not Ozil. Let's just say it's decision to take off attacking number 10 type player. You could say it's to rest him. You could say it's not match. You could say this, that, or the other. But for you... Is it just Emory defaulting a little bit to the let's get more compact, let's sit a little deeper? Because there was a period I tweeted at one point, jokingly, shortly after that, if if the players sit any deeper, they can sit with the fans because we were really packed in near our 18-yard box. How do you distinguish between the actual player he took off and the previous they have with each other and also just the instinct to be more defensive with a lead late in the game?
2: So I did think when he came off, it was probably because Ozil was possibly tiring um, and that this is his first game in a while and that there was kind of a pre-plannedness about it. And that's coincidentally what he said at the end of the day. He said that he he's very likely to be included in the game, which is on Saturday. Um, and he took him off. I, I think what's the maybe the more debatable side of it was who he brought on for him because as you said this was our, uh, our the guy who was stitching together the attack so the natural replacement for him would have been Sabias, you would say uh, but he brought on Ganduzi so you had one more person who's going to sit a little deeper uh, and provide a bit more control whereas Sabias is going to you know Mess things up and well, th- knock there's the ball another point. around and can, take can, risks. Can I make a point yeah.
1: too? There's a knock-on effect because Ozo was playing nominally as the second striker in a four-four-two, yeah. so he took that guy off and moved Willock into that role. And Willock okay. is never going to have the kind of possession or control that Ozo gives you. So, forgetting who you're swapping, you're basically bringing in a midfielder, taking off an attacking third player, and moving a midfielder into that role where he's not as comfortable. So, you are by definition. Going to have less ability to keep and possess the ball in advanced areas. If that if that yeah. makes sense,
2: yeah. So you know, I I can give him the taking Ozil off thing on sixty five. I mean, if we're not going to take the game too seriously, and if we buy into Wolves being uh, what this is all about, and he's he actually has kind of there's a bit of a détente between him and Ozil, and he's kind of back in the plans in the short term and they're trying to find a way forward. I I take that as a result out of this game. If we'll know a little bit more after the weekend, if he's part of the plans and if he gets used, um, so I can I can live with that part of it. It did change the game. Uh, we, as you said, two shots after that, one of them was Willock uh, taking it himself from the halfway and and then hitting the thunder bastard shot, which was sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, but um yeah, the the other side of that substitution is who we brought on and what we did from there on because we basically did an Emery and kind of conceded, maybe not the whole second half, but a good chunk of the second half and said, bring it on, show us what you've got. And unfortunately, they kind of did.
1: What do you think about the Torreira substitution again? I mean, it, it is hard for me to separate who was subbed off from the way they have been sort of used and I guess the more charged language would be treated this season. But... It's Torreira and Ozil, who are clearly not his favorites, who wind up coming off, and the game does change after that. So, I mean, again, I, I, I'm i not trying to find reasons to to get on Emery, but these, these are changes he made in a game where he had a lead, in a game where the team was attacking quite beautifully and seemed to be able to trouble Liverpool almost at will. And these changes change the pattern of play and ultimately are, in some respect... I mean, if you're going to get credit for bringing on substitutions that win you the game... You have to take some criticism if your substitutions do the opposite. So what's your take on the Torreira the swap and the fact that, you know, again, much like Ozil, he he just seems to be a player who, in Emery's eyes, can't, can't play a full 90 and especially not in his preferred position.
2: I think that's generally true. I think we're all generally frustrated about how those two players are used. But you could see the same logic in pulling Torreira off at that time in this game uh the bigger game is Wolves at the weekend uh on Saturday and he he did, I don't know how he'll use Terrera but he's certainly going to be on the bench if not on the pitch can, can and, I stop you
1: for one second just real quick yeah. just to make a cuz po- cuz I think you raised a really important point this is where we don't have the benefit you know you can always say oh well post-hoc analysis isn't smart and hindsight but here's where we kind of almost need hindsight cuz Paul you made a really important point if Ozil and Terrera start on Saturday I would have a totally different view of the substitutions in the Liverpool, you know what I mean. If 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 it proves true that he took them off with an eye towards protecting the team he wants to play in the Premier League, I hold my hands up and say genius. I support that. Right. So we almost need to know that to to be able to then know retrospectively how we feel about this substitution. Does that make sense?
2: It does. But let's disagree a little bit because I also think that even if he's planning to bring them off the bench, he he wants them fresh. And energetic, and enthused, not a little bit jaded. So um, that's why it's a bit like XG. You can't really measure anything against across one game. And similarly, with narrative, you need a you need a run of games. We the thing is, we ha- we have that run of games, but that's previous history. We're hoping to see a change in pattern, relationships, behavior, where Ozil now starts getting used. So, But we're going to have a one-game sample with Wolves. Um, you know, I tend to give the manager credit, uh, whether it's earned or not, for, for uh, a positive intention. I, uh, and I'll do that again this time, which is if he has them on the bench and hopefully uses them, uh, I'll understand his logic here. But I understand he may not have g- uh, garnered this credit from you.
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean... It's hard for me because I, I think the subs were not good subs for the game. But yeah. if it proves that they were done for the purposes of the game coming up, that obviously would change my opinion. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. I, I don't want people to come back to me and say, oh, see, you were a jerk. You said they were bad subs and you played. I, I will fully acknowledge if they play on Saturday, then the subs make complete sense to me. If they don't, I think the subs in part lost us the game. And so let's wrap with this. I mean, look, we lose, we crash out, fine, whatever. I I can't get too exercised about that. Some people can. I, I would much rather have every game be 5-5 than see what we saw against Sheffield United or see what we saw against Palace. I, I, I just enjoyed the shit out of this. And to me, maybe it's because of all those years of Arsene Wenger, a 5-5 feels like Arsenal a hell of a lot more than, you know, than some of what we've been watching. I guess what you see in this game is Arsenal really go for it and they lean into their attacking philosophy and DNA and they score five goals and they have Liverpool pegged back and then they sit in a shell and they concede a couple more and they they lose in, on penalties. Putting the circumstance aside, could you call this a bit of a microcosm of the problem with the Emery era, just the tension between really being willing to take the reins off of the attack and let it go against the, the impulse to try to be safe and try to be secure with a team that just is not comfortable playing without the ball, is not comfortable seating possession and sitting deeper. I mean, can can Emery finally maybe take lessons from this, or do you think the only lesson he'll see is, see, I tried to attack and I got burned?
2: Uh, He could take lessons from it. It was the most, in some ways, in a 5-5 game, it was the most Emery of games because we kept doing the same thing. We'd go ahead and... Uh, seed the initiative. Go ahead and seed the initiative. And I mean, they, ha- you know, this was Anfield away, and uh, it was their kids, but they still had twice the possession, twice the passing we did. Um, you know, we had that unusual structure of a four-four-two, and we we often saw ourselves sitting right back with two banks of, um, and it was just very Emery to keep. To, to not go for ninety minutes of of going at them, and yet it was a still managed to incorporate that in a five five game. So it was kind of something for everybody football excitement, but those who love Emery's style got still got to see plenty of it here. So yeah, it's a bit of a microcosm, but but from a whole uh, whole other pair of glasses, five five is if, if you're going to watch Emery style football, five five is the way to go.
1: Yeah, look, it hasn't been a fun season. This was a fun game. All right, the outcome sucked, but I enjoyed watching it, and there were still things that made me want to pull my hair out. With this Arsenal team, I suspect that will always be the case, but under Emery, I I cannot remember having this kind of fun watching the team very often. So, you know, I guess that's a step forward. We'll see what happens with Wolves. I mean, I am very curious to see where he goes from here. Do we see the same kind of football and the same kind of approach and the same kind of lineups? Is there an aha moment where he just says, you know, I like seeing us score five, and if that means we concede five, then let's be that team. Let's see, but between now and then, we'll see. Clive and I are going to do a first-half rewatch tomorrow for patrons, so that should be really, really interesting because we'll get to really focus in on what Ozil did and Torreira and his space and um, how we scored the goals and created them and how that's different from how we've been playing. I'm really looking forward to that. But until next time, pause on Twitter, uh, at in My pants. Thanks, pause woohoo my name's Alex Smith you can block me on Twitter Yankee Gunner give us a five star review we got a pretty fun uh, promotional type thing coming up uh, in November which we'll tell you about so we are recording on Halloween so I hope you have a spooktacular Halloween uh, I will be walking around with a little tiny unicorn around my neighborhood in a few hours in case anybody's curious and with that having been said we will talk to you after Arsenal 10 Wolves nil.